0: And he was a bad dude. Like He was actually described by the author of 1 Kings as someone who did evil in the sight of the Lord like no one had before him. And there had been some really bad people before him. And so to get that description, man, he must have been bad. And then you read further in 1 Kings and you see that he provoked the Lord in anger like no one before him again. Why was he so bad? Well, Ahab, this king, had taken the nation Israel, the nation that had been led out of Egypt by God, had taken Israel to no longer worship the God of Abraham, the God that had rescued them, and instead had had led, led this nation, this people, to worship Baal, to worship another god, Baal. But God had had allowed a man called Elijah to, to remain faithful. Elijah, actually, the scene is set in chapter 18 where Elijah confronts Ahab. And in almost like a judicial kind of type setting, they debate over who is the true troubler of Israel. And so the gauntlet is laid down. The gauntlet is set. The challenge is there to see who is the true troubler, whose God will really respond. Whose God is the living God? And so Ahab calls upon his his 450 Baal prophets and 400 Asherah prophets. And the challenge is that all of Israel is called to watch and be present. The nation is watching on as this is is unfolding. The Baal prophets go first. What they decide to do is is they're going to lay an altar. Baal is the the god who delights in bulls and so they put a bull down. Hometown advantage, right? And what they're going to do is they're going to call out for fire. Baal was known as the god of thunder and lightning. Man, this is going to be a quick victory because Baal, it's home ground advantage. It's a bull and they want fire. From early in the morning... Till noon, till midday, 450 prophets whip themselves into a religious frenzy as they go around the altar calling out to their god Baal to bring down fire. We, we read in 1 Kings 18 that they were limping and, and whipping themselves up with, with a, such a frenzy, O oh Baal, O oh Baal, hear us, O oh Baal! At midday, Elijah, one lone prophet, steps forward. He prepares 12 stones. He lays the bull on the 12 stones. He gets four jugs of water and he soaks the altar. He gets another four jugs of water and he soaks the altar again. To just really prove a point, he gets another four jugs of water and he soaks the altar and the sacrifice, making it seemingly impossible for what is in front of him to come alight. And then Elijah, a man that I, we don't know this, we're not told this, but I presume a man who no doubt prayed for years before a similar prayer now praise that prayer in public. And he lifts his eyes up and in verse 36 to 37, we are allowed to hear that prayer. And he cries out to the God of Abraham, the God who has done wondrous things in the past, O God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God, Answer me, O oh Lord. Answer me, that this people who have turned away from you, that this people who you have done a mighty work in, in the past, that this people who have rejected you as God, answer me, Lord, that this people would know that you are God. What a powerful, mighty prayer. And God heard that prayer. The sovereign, living God heard that prayer. Not like the Baal who had been, they'd been calling on him, whipping themselves in a frenzy, who did not respond, unable to respond. God responds and brings flames, brings fire to that altar and brings a nation to see that he is the true, living God. Fast forward a little bit in the Bible and you come across a rabble of followers who Jesus gives an extraordinary task. They're told by the Saviour to go out to the ends of the earth and proclaim this good news that salvation can come through Jesus Christ alone. What an incredibly huge task... And so we read in Acts, how do these men respond? These men and women respond to such a task, they devote themselves to prayer, Acts 1.14, as Lara reminded me this week. And then you keep reading throughout Acts, they were devoted to prayer. One of the men, we had the privilege of, of actually getting an account of, from him from around that time, James. James, the man who would have been a part of these prayer meetings wrote a letter that is full of exhortations on how we should pray. And James writes to a specific situation and yet in that specific situation by the sovereign providence of God, he writes in a way that is inspired for you and I to hear today that Elijah, chapter 5, Elijah was a man just like you and I that when Elijah prayed a prayer that was able to turn a nation to see that God is the living God. James experienced how prayer was able to allow the Roman world at the time to take notice of his God. He writes that Elijah was a man just like you and I, that we can pray to this almighty God, that we can speak and ask of him to do mighty things just like Elijah, just like the early church. So many of us would love to sit down and and have a conversation and have access to some of the greats of humanity. We'd love to have access to their wisdom, to their wealth, to their gifts. And so quickly we forget that in, in the righteousness of Christ, we actually have access to the divine, infinite, sovereign power if we just ask. This morning we're going to look at, at prayer and how prayer is powerful, friends. How prayer can see a nation come to see that God is the true and living God. we would just ask. Last week we considered weapons for the mission and the first weapon that we looked at was the gospel and how it is powerful to save. This week we're going to look at Colossians 4 and consider how prayer likewise is, is a powerful weapon for this mission. So would you turn with me as we consider how Paul exhorts us to be people of prayer if we're going to be people on a mission. Colossians 4. I'm going to start at verse 2. Colossians 4, verse 2. Verse 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Heavenly Father, as we come before this word that Paul wrote down for the Colossians, May it be a word that we hear. May you allow the Spirit to impress upon our hearts a desire for praying for those who do not know Christ. Amen. For those that like roadmaps and like to know where we're going this morning, uh, the first question that we're going to ask, if we're going to ask two questions this morning, the first question that we're going to ask is, how do we pray? And we will consider verse 2. And then the second question that we will ask as we consider verse 3 and 4 will be, what do we pray? How do we pray? What do we pray? So look with me at verse 2. As we consider this question, how do we pray? Verse 2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer. How do we pray? Well, the first thing that we come across as Paul is writing, as he talks to us as we consider prayer is a weapon for mission, that we ought to be people who pray steadfastly, that we ought to be praying, uh, some some translations say devoted in prayer, persistent, persevering as we cry out, as we call out to God. Now some of you may be thinking, yeah, but Sovereign Grace Church, don't we believe that God's sovereign? And so, why? Why? Does God really need us to pray to him to act? No, because he's sovereign and will do what he wants, right? I think as we consider the Bible in its entirety, it is clear that yes, it teaches God is sovereign and yet yes, it teaches that we do have responsibility, that God is sovereign and that is the emphasis of scripture whilst it does say that we are responsible. I think we need to act on what we do see. If we were on on a boat, trying to navigate through uh, icy waters. We need to act on what is revealed. When you come across an iceberg, you can only see with your eyes 10% of the actual iceberg, right? There's a lot that you cannot see, but you need to act on what you see. And it seems clear that, yes, God is sovereign, and yet God calls us to participate in His providence to participate in His sovereign grace working out and unfolding that we might be people who pray, who come before Him, that our prayers might be an action that brings on His mercy, that our prayers might even be initiated by Him as an action to bring on His sovereign grace in someone's life. I think, I think it's in that sense that we see in God's sovereignty. Well, actually, consider this: consider what if He wasn't sovereign? What if God wasn't sovereign? Why would you pray, right? Or what if He was sovereign, but He was unwilling to act, unwilling to actually change someone's will? I mean, what's what kind of God is that to talk to or to ask? If if you were to say to God, "I'll um, bring about maybe." that they might start questioning. But even that is is asking God to have an influence on someone's will who doesn't want to even question the existence of God. God is sovereign and so we pray to a sovereign God, we delight that he is sovereign, that he is able to work. And we delight that yet he allows us to participate in his sovereign work, that our prayers are able to have an impact. I think... We pray also as we consider uh, the, the, the truth that John Piper, the nail that he keeps hammering so well is that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. As we consider praying steadfastly, I think it's that sense of, um, as, as John Piper says, prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as wealthy. And so as we come before God as we steadfastly pursue God, we're coming before Him knowing that He is the one who has all the resources and we lack. And so we come before Him again and again knowing and making much of Him the one that can give. During the week, I have a little four-year-old girl, Talitha, Tali. And Tali needed me, needed my help. What she needed was my help to put some clothes on a Barbie doll or whatever. It doesn't really matter what, what it was. But she needed my help. And in classic Tarly fashion, she sought my help and she cried out, Dad! We, we live in a, in a townhouse and she was up the top in her bedroom and, and I was down the bottom. And initially, being a human, I didn't hear her at first. And so she continued, Dad! Dad! And she just perseveres. She, she is steadfast. And as she perseveres, as she perseveres, it becomes like she is so aware that she cannot do this. The more she cries out, the more she calls for her dad, the more she come, becomes aware that she cannot move on, you know, in and on her own abilities without her dad to get these clothes on her Barbie. She needs her dad. And as a dad, I like that. I like that she comes to me and it's actually something that I can do, that I can help. Her need kind of makes much of me her dad. God in his sovereignty designed prayer that we would grow in our awareness of how great he is. That when we encounter our friends who do not know Jesus, we would be coming steadfastly in prayer, persevering, crying out, Dad! Dad! Dad, I need you. I am dependent on you because I cannot do this myself. So, Dad, would you do a miracle? I want to consider maybe what what is it that hinders us as we consider praying steadfastly? Why aren't we so quick to be people who pray steadfastly, people who are devoted to prayer? What hinders us? I think one thing that hinders us is that I was reminded of, as I came across a quote, I was reading this book. It's a book called A God-Sized Vision, Revival Stories That Stretch and Stir. I was reading this book during the week. And the author, in essence, it's just some church historians looking at some of the big revivals that have happened since Acts, whether it's the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening, or the Welsh movement, or the Korean movement, um, these big movements of God where entire nations stand up and take notice of our God. And at the start of the book, the authors observe, saying, we submit that many Christians have grown so content with the ordinary that they don't bother asking God for anything anything more. That we would be so content with the ordinary that we don't even bother asking God for anything more, that sucks. I don't want to be like that. If I'm honest, I think I am. But I want to be compelled to be a man who prays for extraordinary things. How how does that happen? How do we be compelled to be steadfast? I think as we come across this and consider how did Jesus address this? We looked at it a little bit with Dave, but I want to go there again. Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verse 38. We see Jesus urging people to be earnest in prayer, that the harvest is pl- plentiful. The harvest is plentiful, therefore ask. Ask God. And he urges people to be people of prayer, earnest prayer, earnestly asking. But it's not just that he urges people to be earnest. We actually see what drove him, what uh, brought Jesus to be discontent, if you like. And it was as he had just seen a landscape, as he had travelled from town to town. And we read in verse 36 of chapter 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. That's the verb of a word that actually in Greek is, talking, is used to describe the internal organs. I think really what's going on is Jesus saw the plight of these people and he was gutted to the inner core and was compelled to ask God on their behalf. What hinders you from steadfast prayer? Maybe you need to consider the plight of your mum or your friend or your sibling or your colleague. Maybe you need to feel compassion, deep, guttural compassion as you consider their plight that you can sing, friends. You can sing once were enemies but now seated at the table. But they can't. And if I understand the New Testament as we read their plight and we consider what they are facing, that they are living a life where they're saying, God, I don't want to know you. I don't want to know God. And one day God will say, very well, I'll give you what you want. A slippery slope, never being able to get sturdy, terror upon terror sweeping away, gnashing teeth of frustration, a consuming fire, a cup of wrath that is never quenched. As I consider the plight of my mum, even now I just want to stop and I want to pray for her. I want to ask God to do a mighty work that I can't do That apart from him, would he act on my mum? Would he act on my sister, on my friends who I've been meeting up with? As I consider what they are facing, I am bringing myself in earnest, steadfast prayer. As I consider my God, that they are rejecting his name. If someone paid out my dad when I was a little boy, I would have stood up for him. I would have wanted his name to be vindicated. And I would have sought to keep going until they saw that, no, 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 they shouldn't speak about my dad like that. And I would be compelled to earn... It's it's the the steadfastness, friends, of someone who is in wartime and they they look at the landscape and see casualties and they come across a radio, which we have, that they have access to someone who can help and I would not give up. If that was me, I would not give up on that radio until help came. I would persevere, I would be devoted to the radio at that point in time, knowing that I couldn't help but I knew someone who could was on the other end and I would ask and ask and ask. The second thing that might hinder us in being steadfast is what Dave reminded of us of earlier this year. I think we're in a culture that, that struggles with perseverance in general. Even for myself during the week, I was in Macca's drive through Yes, PE teachers aren't really that healthy. And I was in Macca's drive through and there's two lanes at Thornley and I thought I've chosen the quick one. And yet as I'm sitting there, the one on the left was flying past me and I was still sitting there. The car that was behind me had now actually gone through and probably got their food. And I was rising in uh, grace. No. (laughs) And I guess, again, you just realise how impatient we can be that we are such in a now culture. And if it's not fast internet, if it doesn't work straight away we get frustrated and we lose the joy, right, of actually working hard at something that might, you might have to persevere on. But when, you, when it arrives, it's beautiful. That we might be steadfast in prayer, pursuing God, persevering, being devoted, not for two weeks, friends, for as long as it takes growing in our awareness that God is the almighty, wealthy, divine, powerful God that can act, that we might be steadfast on behalf of those who we know, apart from Christ, we would be there too. So we pray steadfast. The second quote that I wanted to share this morning from this, I will share it. They were describing Robert Robert Murray McShane. You may have heard of him. Robert Murray McShane. And they said that he was a man deeply grieved by a world that does not glorify God by heeding his one and only son, Jesus Christ. This burden drives serious believers to intercessory prayer for God to save or stifle sinners while reviving his church. May we be people, men and women, may we be a church that is steadfast in prayer for those who do not know Jesus. How do we pray? We pray steadfastly. We also pray being watchful. Verse 2 again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I think... What Paul means here is, is really to be watchful that, that as you speak, you aren't just rambling and you aren't praying a prayer that's boring even yourself. Watch what you're praying. Be specific. That as I pray for certain people, I want to be praying for specific things coming up that, Lord, may it be that they come to this specific event and would you do this specific work in their heart? Be specific, not rambling. I think it also means to be watchful is that sense that that I'm watching my own heart, that as I pray, it isn't my motive, may it not be my motive that I want my name to be the one that becomes famous, that as I pray for my friends, that it wouldn't be that I look good in the process, but I think as we watch, as we pray steadfastly, we can watch ourselves, that we are not being, as James taught, double-minded, wanting God's name to look good, but I hope I look good too. And as we pray steadfastly, watch ourselves, that our heart would be refined, purified, that our whole desire would be for him, his name to be vindicated, his fame to go out across our city. Not ours, not mine, but his. As we pray, we pray steadfastly. How do we pray? We pray being watchful. We also are told by Paul that we should be watchful and in it with thanksgiving. How do we pray? Steadfast, watchful and thankful. Thankfulness should always marry up in prayer, right? But I think especially in this situation, as we consider that prayer is a weapon for the mission, as we are wanting to be people who are in it to win it, we pray with a thankful heart. Why? I think there's a number of things that we can be thankful for. I think we can be thankful for, firstly, what God has done in me to bring me to a place where I am aware of what what Christ has done. The mystery has been made known to me, that I can talk to God. Thank you for that. I think we can be thankful for the evidence, the evidence of pre-grace, if you like, or grace of... uh, pre-conversion that you can see in their life that that there may be some questions that they're asking that God, only God could have brought about and if you can't even see that in their life then at the very least you can thank God that you have been stirred with a burden to pray for them because God's the initiator of that prayer and clearly God is at work if you are praying for them thank you God for that Because apart from him, would you pray for them? I think you can thank God that as you come before God on the merit and righteousness of Christ, you have access to the holy throne above. You have access to a divine one being who has the power and infinite wealth and wisdom to act and one who is infinitely merciful and gracious that you are not talking as the Baal prophets were to a God that could do nothing. But you are asking a God who can act, who has acted and can act, has the power to act. So as we pray, how do we pray? Paul exhorts us as we consider mission to pray being steadfast be watchful and be thankful. The second question, as I said at the start, that I want to consider this morning, if that's how you pray, well, what do you pray? What do we pray, church? As we pray for the lost, it's no good just doing it again and again and again. What should be the content, if you like, of those prayers? Paul's so helpful here. Let's have a look at verse 3. Paul says in verse 3, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word. It's an interesting term, isn't it, that God might open a door, especially the irony of Paul being someone who is in chains asking for an open door, not for himself, but for the Word. And it's not the first time that you come across this in the Scriptures. Acts 14.27 says, Luke wrote that when they arrived, they declared all that God had done and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Or in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote in in chapter 16, 8 to 9, I will stay in Ephesus for a wide door for effective work has opened. Or 2 Corinthians 2.12, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Therefore, as he is talking to the Colossians, he's asking them, he's asking a group of people to pray for him that a door might open that would make way for the word to go forward in that circumstance. John Piper defines this opening door uh, term simply as a remarkable set of circumstances. I think that's really helpful. That what we pray, the content that we ought to be praying for, that, Lord, would you allow... There to be a remarkable set of circumstances for the word to be heard. Would you allow a remarkable set of circumstances to come about for the word to be heard? Consider your life. Consider where you were born, your family, the friendships that you came in contact with, uh, the time that you went to church and the people who were nice to you. All these uh, circumstances that allowed for you to hear the word. Circumstance upon circumstance through these remarkable circumstances as you look back on your life that allowed for the hearing of the word for you. Lord, may you allow a remarkable set of circumstances for my friend. I think of a friend that, uh, or a number of friends that I first met when I was in high school. I went to Penn and Hills High School and I went to a party once upon a time of Cherrybrook students. <laughs> Janelle was a Cherrybrook student. And uh, and they were our rival, but nonetheless, somehow found myself at this party and developed a friendship to some degree with these these other guys. Not I didn't strike it up really much further from that. When I finished school, I got a job at Rebel Sport Hornsby. One of these guys just happened to get the job on the same day, and again we kind of struck up the friendship again. Uh, through other circumstances, it turned out that. A group of friends that I'd been to school with and a group of friends that he'd been to school with were going to the same pub on uh, Thursday night coming up. And so I decided with another friend of mine that we were going to pray on the way for these friends that we were going to meet up with, that were going to be there as well. And and this happened over maybe a period of about a year, just again every Thursday night. I'd jump in the car with another friend, a close Christian brother of mine. We would jump in the car and we would pray for 10, 15 minutes on our way to North Sydney, praying for our friends who did not know Jesus, praying for this friend that I'd first met at a party. And and even in that process as we were at the pub hanging out with these guys, it was always remarkable how even complete strangers to me would come up and they would instigate conversations and then leave and then through those conversations... Uh, There'd be an opportunity for me to give very Christian reasoning for my answers, if you like. Till eventually, a dozen or so young men walked into my church at the time to do much like our Christianity Explored course. And we saw the Lord open up the mystery of Christ to a number of them. A remarkable set of circumstances that God had allowed, an open door. What do you ask God for when you consider your friends? What do I ask God when I consider uh, my sister who is, is opposed to a conversation with me about Jesus? Somehow, may you align circumstances, Lord, that she would be in a place to hear. What do we pray? The second thing that we pray, if we're going to pray for remarkable circumstances, an open door, the second thing that we should pray for is clarity and understanding. Paul continues, May God open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison and that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I think there's two things here that Paul really is saying that he wants to happen. He wants understanding. He wants them to understand the gospel. That when we speak the gospel, Lord, would you allow it to not be confusing, rabble. May it not be something that they they look at and they consider objectively, but may you allow it to be heard. Open their ears that they would hear it. That, that the mystery of Christ that is a mystery to them may it be revealed to them may it be understood i think it's also praying that there would be clarity for paul as he speaks that as he speaks to his friends that would you pray he's saying to the colossians would you pray for me i don't know what kind of questions they're going to ask so would you pray that i would have clarity that I would even know how to ask them in a way that is helpful and not confusing. I had the absolute privilege in the last few months of watching a student at my school walk through this. Uh, uh, This process was stunningly clear. When he first came to me, and and it was a Christian studies lesson that I was teaching at this school, and uh, I taught uh, taught the lesson, and, and he came up to me at the end and said, a question that wasn't even really related to the lesson. Just asked me, Sir, do you think I'm going to hell? And I took him through a series of scriptures, if you like, that really talk about how someone um, can receive Jesus. And then I just said, have you done that? And he said, I don't know. I don't really know this Jesus. It was just before school holidays and I said, well why don't you take these scriptures and you consider it? And I gave him a Bible and he went away. At the other side of the school holidays, I asked him, I said, how would you go with those scriptures? How did you get on considering those scriptures? And he said to me, I think I understand. I think I get it. it but yet it, seemed, it seems too simple. It seems too simple, sir, that, that it's just about trusting in Jesus. And then he goes, but then on the flip side, it just seems really hard And I'm not ready for that. And I thought, well okay, I think he's, he's a little bit further on, and I, I left him with that. I said, "All right, keep, keep considering and weighing up those scriptures." And I walked away praying for him, that, that the Lord would make it clear. And then about a week or two later, he just came up to me off his own back in the playground, and came up to me and said, "Sir, I've become a Christian. What do I do now?" I thought, oh, okay, well, that's that's wonderful, but let, let's see what you mean by that. And it was clear that the mystery, that what had once been an incredible mystery, uh, that I had had the privilege of watching this boy process, but really watching the Spirit unlock and lay before him in a way that he came to a point where he just couldn't help it. <laughs> yep, you're God. Yep, I need to say that, and I can't deny. I want Jesus. What do we pray? We pray for a remarkable set of circumstances and that the Spirit would reveal the mystery. Practically speaking, I want to encourage us practically as we consider prayer. It's a weapon for the mission. It's a powerful weapon that we can ask God and He responds. The Almighty One who created the world responds, like He did to Elijah to you. Practically then, can I encourage you to be a part of the prayer meetings that our church puts on? Can I encourage you to gather corporately that on behalf of this suburb, this city, this nation, you would ask God for those who are lost to know him, that his name would be vindicated I think privately too, I think you ought to be encouraged to be a, a man and a woman, or a woman of prayer in your own private life, that you would be devoted in prayer. For some of us, your gut is to then go, right, that's awesome, I'm going to do 60 minutes every day just praying steadfastly, and I think, well, okay, if you can do that, excellent. But if you don't do that, then don't, you know, don't... I used to do a bit of high jump and I would never walk up to a metre 90 and try and jump that straight away. I'd work my way up. Why don't you start with five minutes? And there's no shame in that. Five minutes. If you can start with five minutes, find the time that works for you. There's no rule. There's no hard and fast. This is the way that God will hear. And just ask and seek and grow your heart for those who you know need Jesus. I heard a story, and it was actually reminded in this book as I was considering the revivals of the past. I heard a story a while ago of how a bunch of American students went over to Oxford and they met up with a historian by the name, I think, um, J. Edgar Orr, I think, Anyway, and this guy, J. Eganoy, just got his PhD in revivals in the church in the past and he was sharing with these young students, these young Americans in Oxford, in the homes of where some of the uh, people who had been used by God in his grace and his sovereignty had been used by God to do wonderful things. Men like Whitfield, men like Wesley, men like Whitfield who had preached... Uh, regularly in America to crowds of up to 20,000 who would never have gone into a church and, and what became known as open air preaching where he would just stand up and there would be silence as this man preached. And the Spirit just seemed to work and move in mighty ways bringing hard men bringing cities full of drunkards to see their lives transformed and know the mystery of Christ was no longer a mystery. Men like Whitfield and Wesley. And this, this historian was taking these students into the, these rooms, and literally there was a room where they, he took them to where Wesley had actually put crevices on the carpet, the story goes, from where his knees had been from praying and seeking God on behalf of those who did not know Jesus. The students went back and got on the bus and the leader noticed that one of them was missing. And he went back to try and find this student and he found him knee in the left groove, right knee in the right groove. And he overheard him praying, Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. That man Billy Graham was then got went on and used by God to do mighty things where he preached and himself saw thousands. Come to know He is Saviour. Prayer is powerful, friends. As we consider mission, prayer is powerful. Would you be a church, would you be an individual who seeks God on behalf of the lost in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning that you have spoken to us in Colossians that you have provoked us to be men and women of prayer. Would you provoke us further, Lord, that we would pray on behalf of those, our friends, on behalf of our city, on behalf of our nation, that we would see you exalted, Lord, that we would see you do wonderful miracles, miracles greater than even what Elijah saw, that we would see many acknowledge your name. As the prophet Habakkuk prayed, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. Amen.